morning. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me here today to share. Oh, perfect, thanks, Tim. Uh, to share with you and continue your studies um, and your series in Matthew's Gospel. Um, I'm looking down, and although I recognise most, I definitely don't recognise all. So for those who, uh, who don't know me either, my name's Dan. Uh, I go to the local church at Riverside Christian Assembly, just down the road. Um, and, it's, and it's great again to be here with you today. Uh, turn with me then to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 26. If you've got a Bible, uh, Matthew 26, if not... You can probably find it on your phone, or I will try and read it as clearly as I can. Now, before we get into the verses, let's just set a bit of context as to where we are. Now, you, hopefully, were all here, or most of you would have been here last time, um, so you will be well up to speed with where we are. But for those who aren't, and just to set a bit of context to our passage today, um, we, of course, are nearing the end of this account of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew's Gospel, nearing the end of the road, the climax of this account. We are currently hours away, really, from the cross of the Lord Jesus. It's, it's there, it's in sight. And today we're coming to, to a very significant part of that final journey of the Lord Jesus. You know, this day of the year... Um, not today, as in the day that we're going to be reading about, was always significant uh, to the Jews. It was the feast of Passover, and thousands of Jews would have travelled uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And that feast, of course, was a divinely ordained festival for the Jewish nation, given to them by God, to look back and to remember the deliverance that God had given them in the past, that great day, uh, about 1,500 or more years before this day here, where God had rescued, had redeemed his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. And God then ordained that every single year his people would remember that deliverance, that redemption, in the feast of Passover. But more than any other time, perhaps other than the first, that this uh, Passover feast had been remembered, this was probably the most significant of them all. And it was the most significant because this was the last one. The last one. Now what do I mean by that? Because Jews today still celebrate this feast of Passover. Well, let me clarify what I mean. It was the last one, as it was the last one that had any real significance, or should I say divine approval. Because hours from this point here, Jesus Christ was going to fulfil the true meaning of Passover. He was to become, as the Bible puts it, our Passover as he went to the cross. The feast of Passover and the remembrance of it was coming to a close. And in its place, the Lord Jesus Christ is now going to introduce something new. A new feast. And that's what we come to in our passage today. So let's read it then. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26. 
Now as they were eating, that's the Lord Jesus and his disciples eating the Passover, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But... After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And we look for the Lord's help as we consider this very significant passage today. Now, just as we were reading it, you could probably tell that we're in two parts, or we can divide our passage into two parts today. So just to help you track how we're doing, uh, let me give you some Titles. I hope you like F's. There's a lot of F's in my titles today. Uh, in verses 26 to 29, uh, we're at the end of the Passover, and as we've said before, we have something new, and we have what I've described as the founding of the new feast. The founding of the new feast. And then, in verses 30 to 35, we have really an altogether different tone, and we have the foretelling of failure the foretelling of failure, the founding of the new feast and the foretelling of failure. So we begin then in verse 26 and you can tell from the very beginning that we're in the middle now of this Passover feast. Now as they were eating, um, that's what the verse says. And as we said at the beginning, this was a time where across Jerusalem and across Jews across the world were remembering the deliverance of their nation from Egypt those many, many years ago. It was a time to refocus their nation's mind on their God and his power to save. His power to save. Perhaps it had particular significance for this time because the people were once again under occupation. They were no longer in a strange land, but a strange land had come and occupied them, the Romans, and perhaps around the nation, the people were praying that God would once again send a deliverer like Moses and once again deliver them from an occupying force. Well, little did they know that God had done exactly that. He'd sent them a saviour. But it wasn't to deliver them in the way that they had thought. It was an altogether different and more important saving that the nation 
and indeed the world needed. But they were in the middle of this feast. Now, I'm not sure how much was said last week. Let me give you a very quick breakdown of how the Passover feast went, because it was a very prescribed affair, um, as you will see. First of all, they would have had an initial cup of wine, a red wine mixed with water to dilute it, um, so to ward off any impact the alcohol may have had, and it was accompanied by a blessing, uh, given no doubt by the head of the household, normally the father at the time and it was symbolising all of these things in this feast were symbols represented something else and it was symbolised the blessing of God after that first cup then they would have had a ceremonial washing of their hands uh, we would wash our hands we would got two young boys and trying to get them to wash their hands before dinner of course is quite a quite a difficult feat um, but nevertheless this was not for that reason it wasn't just for cleanliness as we were there it was a ceremonial washing to speak more of the need for cleanliness before God not of the body but of the soul number two number three then what happened next then would be brought out um, bitter herbs and bread, unleavened bread and the people would share this bitter herbs, it probably wouldn't have been particularly pleasant to eat but it was to symbolise the bitterness of their time or their ancestors' time as slaves in Egypt then there would be a second cup that would be brought out again, red wine mixed with water um, and As that cup would be shared, the person who was leading the feast, the head of the house, the father, would explain, would tell the story of Passover, would explain it. And would explain what God had done and the significance of it to them today. Then after that second cup, they would sing. And they would sing what's called the Hallel. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but it it means praise. And they would turn to their hymn books. Now we've got the copy of the Jewish hymn books because it's the Psalms. And they would turn to the Psalms which we have in our Bibles. And they would turn probably to Psalms 113 to Psalms 118. And they would sing throughout the course beginning then after the second cup. They would sing the praise of God and they would sing these Psalms as given to them by God. And then finally, the lamb would be brought out, that centrepiece almost of the Passover feast. A lamb that would remind them of that lamb that was initially killed, right way back when they were slaves in Egypt, and that final curse was being brought on that nation, the Egyptians by God. And God would tell his people that they had to take a lamb. If they were going to survive the slaying of the firstborn, they would have to take a lamb. They would have to take that lamb that was perfect and sacrifice it, kill it, and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel so that when that angel of death came over, it would pass over that house, leaving the inhabitants unharmed. They would be safe, they would have been saved because someone else, or another animal in this case, had died. And so the lamb would come out, and just as they did those many years ago, they would eat it, cooked in the fire, and shared with one another. And the father would bless it, and they would have bread again, and eat it with each other as the meal proper 
would begin. Now, we're not told at what stage they are in verse 26, but that gives a little bit of background. I imagine they're fairly, fairly, uh, most of the way through here. A fair amount of the way through. And as you would have seen last week, they would have just had this, well, bombshell dropped on them by the Lord Jesus as they were eating. That one of them, one of the disciples, one of the twelve that were sitting with them round, eating, sharing this feast, was going to betray them. And we, of course, know that it was Judas Iscariot. And John, in his account, and his gospel, tells us that it was at this point Judas was dismissed by the Lord Jesus. He would have no part in these verses that we've just read, in what was to come. So when Judas has gone then, Jesus begins in verse 26 to break from the tradition that we just read, the, the course of the cups and the ceremonial washing of the hands, etc. Something now was going to change. Now, what was going to happen was, on the face of it, perhaps not too different, there was going to be bread, and we thought about bread already, there was going to be wine, and we thought about wine was involved too, but it was going to completely change and completely alter uh, the feast as it would normally normally happen. Now we're going to consider what happened next in three parts, again just to help uh, so you can track where we're going. First of all we're going to think about the directive, I should say these aren't my headings here, um, I thought I found them from someone else, I thought they were quite good. Uh, we're going to think about the directive, what happened? What does the Lord Jesus direct them to do? Then we're going to think about the doctrine. In other words, what's the meaning behind the significance of what Jesus is doing here? What's the meaning behind this bread and this wine that the Lord Jesus prescribes them to take and to share? And then finally, the third D, the duration. This particular new feast, this new thing that Jesus was telling them to do, had a set time limit on. It was only to be for a set period of time, and we're going to think about its duration. So first of all then, the directive, what does Jesus do? Now as they were eating verse 26, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. He takes this bread. It would have been the unleavened bread that he had with them at the time that they would have been using as part of the Passover feast. And at the moment there's nothing new. They would have been breaking bread and passing it as they would be eating the meal together. But Jesus stops. He takes this bread and once again, as he would have done at the beginning when he did that initial blessing as part of the Passover feast, he looks to heaven and he blesses God for it. He thanks God for it. Of course, that's what God tells us to do, doesn't it? First Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells us this, For everything created by God is good and to be received with thanksgiving. He thanks God for the provision of this food, but it has a real significance to it, this thanksgiving. Because afterwards he says this to the disciples, Take, eat. This is my body. This is my body. He was thanking God, not just for the provision of food for them, but for providing, for God providing them his body. And we'll think about a little bit of what that means when we come to the doctrine behind it. 
But he thanks God. That's what he does. He thanks God. He takes the bread. He breaks it. And he passes it to his disciples. Then, what's next? Very simple. He takes a cup. Again, a similar cup that would have been used. Verse 27, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. He takes his cup, he blesses it again, thanks God for it, and then requires each one of them to drink. Drink of it, all of you. Now that might sound familiar to you, particularly if you've been to this church, or you are part of this church here, or you've been to other churches before. Bread and wine form part of what we would commonly call today the Lord's Supper. And this is the institution of what we call the Lord's Supper. That name you won't find here, but if you go into your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll find that's what Paul calls it, the Lord's Supper. That is the Lord Jesus' Supper. Sometimes you might hear it called communion today. And of course that relates to the significance of participating in the Lord's Supper together, that the church would come gathered together and as fellow participants, not just in a church, but by fellow participants of the saving power of Jesus Christ, they would partake of this feast. Perhaps you might have heard it under another name, Eucharist, often used in more high churches perhaps, um, which is just a Greek word meaning thanksgiving. And there's lots of thanksgiving here, isn't there, as we've already thought. Emphasising another aspect of the Lord's Supper, which is thanksgiving to God for the giving of his Son. And it's a very simple process, isn't it? It's not as, I'm not going to say convoluted, but it's not as, as many steps or as much to do as there would have been in the previous Passover. Just bread, shared, and wine pass one to another. But it was something new. And we're going to see that the Lord Jesus then requires them to continue to do this. To continue to do this. This was to be the new feast that they were to do. Bread and wine. What's the significance of it then? What's what's the doctrine behind it? Now, doctrine just means um, the spiritual meaning of something. The doctrine of the Lord's Supper. What, what does it mean? Now previously when we come to the bread first, this unleavened bread, well first of all which was the bread that they would have had way back in Egypt. Unleavened because they didn't have time to make it properly so they hadn't put that leaven into it. But the Bible uses this as symbolic of, or the bread it was symbolic of the new life that God was going to give them now. Leaven, that picture of corruption, of sin, was absent from this bread. And it was to represent their new life, free from the influence of Egypt, free from the influence of sin, the world and its wickedness. But the Lord Jesus, he changes the picture now. He changes what this bread means. He says, as we've already thought, this is my body. And the Gospel of Luke adds, given for you. Now it's important to clarify what he means here. It's not his actual body. Now that is taught by some that when you observe the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine become the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not what he's saying here. He said, I am the bread of life before. In fact, you can find that in John's Gospel. And he wasn't meaning that his body was bread. And um, the same is true here. This is a symbol. This is to represent something. 
And the Lord Jesus said, This bread represents my body given for you. Now this was, this was established before the Lord Jesus died, but that's what he's referring to. It's a symbol of his sacrifice, the giving of not an animal now, not a lamb, but himself on our behalf on the cross. A symbol of his body given to bring us life there on Calvary. And as they shared it, and as Christians today share the bread, broken and shared among them, it is to remind them of that fact, Jesus Christ sacrificed for them. But then he took the cup as well, verse 27, and said, drink of it, all of you. Verse 28, for, and this is the meaning of it, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So there's a few things to dig into here. What is the significance of this, this wine then, this cup? This is my blood. Let's start there. What's he referring to here? Well, he's referring once again to his death upon the cross. Quite literally, his blood would have been shed there on the cross. But symbolically, it's talking about the pouring out of his life in death. Blood (coughs) symbolising that life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. That's what the Bible says. And the shedding of his blood on Calvary's tree was a deliberate act of himself, of giving himself, of giving his life, pouring it out before God as a sacrifice for sin. And it had significance. It had significance. Because it was the blood of the new covenant. Now, new isn't mentioned in Matthew's here, but it is mentioned um, in Luke, and it's mentioned as well um, uh, by Paul Blood of the new covenant. Well, what is a covenant, first of all? A covenant is a solemn promise between two parties. There are lots of covenants in the Bible. And particularly there are covenants between God and man. God and mankind. And we don't have time to go through all the different covenants today. But think about it like this. A solemn promise between God and man. Man And each one that had gone before, God had required that blood be shed. Blood be shed at the commencement of that covenant. So, for example, one of the covenants in the Bible is when God, with the nation of Israel, gave them the law. Often you might hear it called the Mosaic Covenant. This is what God said. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's in Exodus chapter 24. You can see a very similar words being used, the blood of the covenant. And at that time, there would have been many sacrifices that would have been slain at the commencement of that covenant. And you can go back and look through the different covenants and see that to be the case. So here was a new covenant. And it required blood to be shed, a sacrifice to be made, not of an animal now, but of a man. The first time that happened, 
that God required the shed blood of a man to establish his promise with, between him and, him and mankind. But it was more than just a normal, a normal, more than just any old person, more than just, if I could say this, a regular man. Here was a unique man, a man who was described as the Lamb of God. This was the man who was God. We know that, of course, from many verses in the Bible that this was God who had become man for this very purpose. For the very purpose of going to the cross and giving his life. What was the new covenant then? What was the promise between God and man that was being established by the death of Jesus Christ? Well, let me read it to you. Let me read a summary of it um, from Jeremiah chapter 31. You don't need to turn to it. I'll read it for you. Um, It says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. That was the promise that God was making now. Something new. Something that hadn't come before. Previously God had given the law and said, if you want to live, if you want to um, live before me, this is what you have to do. And he gave them the law. But now this is a new promise, this is something new. Where there's no requirement upon, upon mankind here. Have you noticed that? Everything that God promises is for him to do. This is all of him. He says that I will forgive your iniquity, I will remember your sins no more. And that's what it says in verse 28, doesn't it? Blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That was the reason that Jesus Christ died. That was the reason he shed his blood on the cross. I wondered if you've thought about that before. Why did Jesus Christ die? Well, it was no accident. Clearly the Lord Jesus knows this is going to happen before the event. In fact the Bible tells us that this was always in the plan of God. That Jesus Christ his son would come to die upon a cross. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. So that Jesus Christ could be a saviour. To save us from the consequences of our own sin before God. I want to ask you a question today. Do you know Jesus Christ as your saviour? Do you know what it is to have your sins forgiven? Because this is the only way that we can be right before God. Through the death of Jesus Christ. Through the shedding of his blood. That is how we have our sins forgiven. And be redeemed from the judgment of God. And finally then, that is really the doctrine of it. We have the bread, we have the cup, signifying his body given and his blood shed. And then the Lord Jesus says this, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Notice how um, it's kind of hinted at here, um, and in other passages it's made more firm, that the Lord Jesus 
puts a time limit on this. Puts a time limit on this feast. That this Lord's Supper is only to continue, uh, continue until he comes again. Did you know that he's coming again? The Lord Jesus Christ has promised he's coming back. And when he comes back, it's not to die upon a cross. It's not to shed his blood. It's not to give his body on the tree. That's happened. That's in the past. Once for all. He's coming to establish his kingdom. He's coming to fulfill all the other passages that speak of the Messiah to come. Not just of his death now, that's happened. But of the coming kingdom when he will reign. And on that day, he will drink again the fruit of the vine with those who love him. With those who have been remembering him before through the Lord's Supper. Every uh, time they break bread and every time a Christian and Christians gather together to break bread and to take the cup and to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, they do so knowing that he's coming again. He's coming again to establish his kingdom. Then finally we have the second, the second section which won't take as long for us to get through because it's very simple in, in what happens here. The founding of the new feast is what we've just had. Um, and now we have the foretelling of failure. The feast has come to an end. The Lord Jesus has established the Lord's Supper. And after they sing a hymn, they go out to a place just outside the walls of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. And there, as they're making their way there, the Lord Jesus makes another shattering announcement. Not only would one of his closest disciples betray him, but now he says, the remainder of you, you're going to fall away and flee. You're going to scatter like sheep after their shepherd is struck down. And that's a quotation from the Old Testament from another prophet called Zechariah who anticipates the striking down of God's shepherd to come. Now God's shepherd here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls himself that, I am the good shepherd. And what's really startling is in that passage it's not the Romans who are striking down the Lord Jesus nor is it the Jews, it's God himself striking down his shepherd. And it's speaking of the cross, where the Lord Jesus Christ would come there and be struck for the punishment of sin by God. And the passage said in Zechariah that the sheep, his disciples, would then scatter. He's talking about their fleeing away, their failure, that when he's taken, they will run. But against this backdrop of darkness and shame for the disciples, he gives them hope. He says to them in verse 32, after I am raised up. Now what does he mean by that? What's the significance? Well, he's told them this again and again in the past, but he tells them this again, that yes, I'm going to die, but after I die, three days later, I'm going to be raised to life again. Raised to life again, but after I am raised up, it almost feels like a throwaway comment, but it's not. The significance of it is so profound. Because the Lord Jesus Christ did not remain on the cross. And although he died that day, and yes, he was buried and laid in a tomb, three days later he rose again from the dead. And he gives them this hope. And he tells them that once he's risen again, once he's raised up, he will go before them. So the place really for them where it all began, back to Galilee. Why does he tell them this? You know, I don't think it was for them to understand right then. I don't think they did understand then. It's clear from what Peter goes on to say that he didn't appreciate this. But he's telling them so they could look back afterwards and remember how 
He knew what they were going to do. He understood their weakness. He knew all about their fear. He knew about their, their running away. He knew exactly how they would act. But there was no rebuke here in the Lord Jesus' words. There was no shunning of them for their betrayal. Instead, he gave them a wonderful promise that he would see them again. You know, there's something in us for there too. You know, God knows all about us. The Lord Jesus knows you today. You're sitting in this audience here. You're listening to me preach, probably feeling going on a bit long. But you're probably sitting here. And I don't know your hearts today. I don't know what's inside your mind or your heart. But there is someone who does. And he knows your fears. And he knows your failures, past, present and future. He knows your doubts. He knows what you think about his son. And he knows what you, think, what you think about yourself and what you think about God. And he knows all of this. And that could be quite a fearful thing. To think that one day we're going to have to stand before that person who knows everything about us. But it can also be a comfort too. That God knows this about us. He knows our failures. He knows our sin. He knows the times we've failed. And we all have failed. But knowing that, and knowing that right from the beginning of time, he still sent his son. He still sent the Lord Jesus Christ to save, not just to save people, although that's true. He came and sent him to save you. To save you. But Peter, who had already had a dressing down by the Lord, you can see that in Luke 22 and John 13. He vehemently denied he would do such a thing. He said, no, although the others will fall away, I will never fall away from you. So then the Lord gives Peter a more specific forewarning of his failure. He says that before the cock will crows, he would deny the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. You don't think you're going to fail me, Peter. You're going to fail me three times. You know, the Lord knows our own specific weaknesses. He knows that even when we have the best will in the world, we still fail him. But this is why God's salvation is by faith alone, by his grace through faith. This is why there could be no other way. Because no matter how hard we try, we will always fail. Even if we have the zeal of Peter to see how he failed. We will always fall short. I'm not here to put anyone down or to make people feel despondent today, but to give you a hope in this. The God who knows us and knows our hearts, who knew Peter and knew his failure, he didn't give up on Peter. He doesn't give up on you in this sense. That salvation from God, God's forgiveness, is not earned by how zealous we are, or how good we are, or how good we are at attending church, or how good we are at praying. God's salvation, God's forgiveness, is not earned by us. It's given as God's free gift of his grace. How can God forgive us? Why? Because Jesus Christ died and he rose again. And that's why this passage is so significant, I think. Because it shows us, really the entire passage shows us that God always knew, and the Lord Jesus Christ always knew what lay ahead. This was no accident, the cross of Jesus Christ. But there was a meaning behind it. And the meaning behind his death is as significant today as it was then. And as he prepares his disciples for what's to come, let me ask you to look back. Look back at what the Lord Jesus Christ did upon the cross. Foretold thousands of years before it happened, that he would die, the Son of God would die on a cross just outside Jerusalem. Why? So that he could redeem, he could rescue 
Remember way back when the Passover first began. What happened? God rescued. He redeemed his people. What's this new feast all about? What, what's this new redemption? Well, it's a redemption not of a nation or a specific group of people, but it's a redemption for any who would come, for all and for any who will come to Jesus Christ. To save and to forgive us from our sins. I hope today that if, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will, you will come to him. It doesn't have to be any significant moment. It could just be with you sitting in your seat right now. And put your faith and trust in the one who died for you. Uh, thank you for having me today. Thank you for listening so well. Let me just close with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we give you thanks for this uh, wonderful gospel, this account of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that was always leading up to the cross. And as we've thought today about the significance of the Lord's Supper, of the bread and the wine, we remember our God that these, uh, this is no uh, vague symbol or feast that has lost any meaning. This is as important today as it was back then. Reminding us in symbol of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in giving himself upon the cross. Our God, we thank you for him. We thank you for the great love which he has for every single one of us. Knowing us entirely, yet still loving us completely. And we pray, our God, that if there be any here today who, who know the burden of their sin, but are not yet right with God, that they would know forgiveness. And they would be forgiven based on what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on Calvary. We thank you for him. We thank you for everyone here today. We pray now as we come to the end of of our service here that you would bless each one as we go. Um, We pray that you would help us to retain the word of God. Take away any words that we're we're not of yourself. We pray that you would encourage our hearts through your word today. As these things we pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.